The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Genesis, and today the next passage we come to is Genesis 34 verses 1 through 31. So I'll be reading a selection of verses from that passage. And it says, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the woman, the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field, and soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and were very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourself. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it, and get your property in it. Shechem also said to his father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to him, We cannot do this thing, to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only under this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones, and all their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink 
to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Joe. Let's pray together. Father, we know that in order to rightly understand both what this passage is teaching and how it connects to our lives, we need the Holy Spirit. So please send your spirit, Lord, to minister to us through this passage today in a most powerful way. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the most well-known feuds in American history is popularly known as the Hatfield-McCoy feud. It lasted from 1863 to 1891, so for about 30 years. And the conflict began when a member of the Hatfield family, who had fought for the Confederate Army, went out with a group of some other Confederate militiamen and ambushed and killed a member of the McCoy family, who had fought for the Union Army. After that, nothing really notable happened until 13 years later, when the two families began disputing about who owned a particular pig. And that dispute over the rightful ownership of the pig turned out to be the match that lit the flame of the rest of the feud. It would go back and forth for the next 20 years and was quite the fiasco. People were kidnapped, homes were burned down, uh, multiple jailbreaks were carried out, numerous people were ambushed, and by the time all was said and done, over a dozen people had been murdered. And the feud also had political elements as well, because the Hatfields lived in West Virginia, and the McCoys lived just across the state line in Kentucky. The governing authorities themselves got into some heated arguments over who had jurisdiction and how uh, extradition laws would be applied. At one point, the, the governors of the two states actually threatened to have their militias invade each other's states over this. And eventually, the interstate conflict actually had to be settled by the United States Supreme Court. It's quite the story, really. And sadly enough, it's a story that illustrates a tendency all of us have. Whenever someone wrongs us, we instinctively desire to retaliate. We want revenge. And sometimes that desire for revenge can consume us, just as we see happening here in our main text in Genesis 34. This passage shows us that the desire for revenge isn't anything new, but rather has existed from ancient times. Now, to remind you of the context here, a man named Jacob 
returned to where he was from, the land of Canaan, after a 20-year sojourn several hundred miles away. And as Jacob returned, he reconciled with his brother Esau. That's what we read about last week in Genesis 33. However, Jacob once again showed himself to be a deceiver by not following through on the promise he had made to Esau about reuniting with him in the land of Seir and instead going to a place called Succoth and then to the city of Shechem. In addition, not only was this not where Jacob had told Esau he would go, it's also not where Jacob had told God he'd go. You see, way back in um, Genesis 28, when God had visited Jacob uh, when he was in Bethel, Jacob had committed to return to Bethel in order to build a structure that he called God's house. Yet in Genesis 33, Jacob instead goes to Shechem in order to build an altar, perhaps because he thought he'd be more prosperous there. He probably reasoned to himself that you know, it was okay because Shechem was only 20 miles away from Bethel, and he was still building an altar to God, after all. However, the fact remains that by going to Shechem, Jacob wasn't being fully obedient to God's will. In fact, he was being disobedient because that's what partial obedience is, right? Partial obedience is actually disobedience. So when you think about it, everything that happens in Genesis 34 with the rape of Jacob's daughter and the massacre of the people of Shechem was actually Jacob's fault to some degree. None of the terrible events of this chapter would have happened if Jacob had been obedient and gone to Bethel instead of going to Shechem. But that's what often happens when we disobey God's will. Disobedience often leads to disaster, as we see here in Genesis 34. Look at verses 1 through 7. Now, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. So Jacob's daughter... Dinah is raped by the prince of the city named Shechem. Um, now, keep in mind that the name of the city itself was also Shechem. Right? So I can get a little confusing in the text. Um, so there you have Prince Shechem, who's the prince of the city of Shechem. Obviously, both of them probably being named after the, the founder. And obviously, Prince Shechem's decision to, to rape Dinah uh, would be a disgusting and horrendous thing to do in any circumstance. But it's particularly uh, unwise since Dinah has 11 
very protective brothers. And verse 7 tells us that when these brothers heard what had happened, quote, they were indignant and very angry because Shechem had done an outrageous thing. We then read in verses 8 through 12, but Hamor spoke with him saying, the soul of my, my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. So obviously, Shechem is pretty desperate here. But his father, Hamor, tries to be a bit more strategic in his request. Hamor attempts to convince Jacob and Jacob's sons not just to allow his son to marry Dinah, but to start allowing intermarriage in general between Jacob's people and the people of Shechem. Hamor probably thought that would be economically advantageous. Then, in verses 13 through 15, Jacob's sons demonstrate that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, as the saying goes. Jacob himself was a pretty crafty guy, as we've already seen in Genesis, and Jacob's sons show themselves to be quite crafty as well. It says, the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he has defiled their sister Dinah. They said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Now, circumcision was something that God had commanded Jacob's grandfather Abraham to, to do as a sign of the covenant he had made with Abraham to bless him in some very notable ways. And it was a sign that was to be applied to all of Abraham's male offspring, essentially marking them off as God's chosen people. Yet here in these verses, Jacob's sons use this sacred and God-given sign for their own treacherous scheme. We then read in the subsequent verses how Hamor and Shechem readily agree to the requirement. And so Shechem is immediately circumcised, and Hamor and Shechem together uh, successfully convince uh, the rest of the men in the city to be circumcised as well by promising them economic prosperity through their association with Jacob. Verse 24, And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. And that turns out to be a very bad decision. Look at verses 25 through 29. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with a sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured 
plunder. So, yeah, that is pretty low, right? That is like the definition of a cheap shot, I guess. I mean, it's one thing to launch a surprise attack, but to do what Jacob's sons do in these verses is just something else entirely. Yet that's the extent to which they had been, they were consumed with a desire for revenge, right? Their desire for revenge had blinded them to such an extent that they were willing to wipe out who knows how many innocent people, all because of an offense committed by one man. Yet as extreme as their response is, let's not allow ourselves to imagine that we also don't desire quite often to get revenge on those who wrong us. Now, hopefully, we've never massacred an entire city before, but we do sometimes find ourselves trying to get even with people for wrongs that they've committed against us. I mean, you can see it even in early childhood, right? Like, when one child, let's say, hits their sibling, how does the sibling usually respond? Are they like, uh, excuse me, I, I didn't really like that. Could, could you please not do that anymore? Yeah. Well, I don't know about your kids, but usually that's not the case, right? I mean, if your kids usually respond that way, then we've got to get you teaching a parenting class or something, right? Because that is not the typical response in the Tancordo household, at least not until we make them say something like that. But usually, of course, the sibling that was hit responds by hitting back, usually even harder or doing something worse than was done to them. And if they're outmatched, well, then they go to mom and dad and tell on their sibling and usually uh, exaggerate and embellish things just a bit to, so that the offending party gets into even more trouble. Right? But one way or another, they try to get revenge. Now, chances are that as an adult, you have figured out ways to get even with other people that are slightly more sophisticated than that, but not fundamentally different. Now, from time to time, of course, there are particularly dramatic ways people try to get revenge. Uh, for example, road rage comes to mind, or, or, or maybe um, another would be cheating on your spouse because they cheated on you. And yet there are also plenty of other ways that people try to get revenge on others that aren't as dramatic or severe, but that are still radically divergent from the way God calls us to respond. One behavior that seems to be particularly widespread is gossiping. Not only is this perhaps the most common way that we try to get even with others, it's also uh, quite possibly one of the most harmful ways. Like when we feel that someone else has slighted us or done something against us, wronged us in some way, well, it can be very tempting to talk about them behind their backs. And it feels so good, doesn't it? Like, like we feel so justified in the moment and saying the things we say 
because, well, we think to ourselves, they deserve it. They hurt me, so I'll hurt them. Another very common way we try to get revenge on others is through passive-aggressive behavior. Instead of addressing the issues that we have with people in an open and direct way, we express our frustration with them indirectly. For those of us who are married, maybe we you know, try to give our spouse the, the silent treatment or withdraw from the relationship in some way. Or you know, maybe we sulk around the house and snap at our spouse for extremely minor things. It's also possible to exhibit passive-aggressive behavior in the workplace. Maybe we deliberately try to make a coworker's job more difficult for them, or reply to them sarcastically, or with snarky comments. So even though Genesis 34 lays before us a very dramatic and severe example of getting revenge, don't miss all of the more subtle ways in which we uh, often try to get revenge in the course of our everyday lives. And notice also in this passage how we often try to get revenge in ways that are disproportionate to the actual offenses committed against us. You know, Jacob's sons, as we've said, slaughtered and plundered the men of an entire city because of an offense that one man from that city had committed against their sister. So even though Shechem raping Dinah was obviously a horrendous thing to do, the punishment that was carried out by Jacob's sons far exceeds the crime. And that's the tendency that all of us have in exacting revenge, isn't it? We tend to respond in ways that are disproportionate to what's been done against us. And in our misguided zeal, we can sometimes become so blinded by our desire for revenge that we do things that are incredibly rash and unwise. Just as we see in Genesis 34, we find an indication of just how unwise this was in verse 30. It says, Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. So obviously, uh, Simeon and Levi, who were the ones who actually carried out this massacre, hadn't really thought ahead. They may have decisively eliminated all the people in Shechem who were a threat to them, but they hadn't considered how the other Canaanite cities around them would respond. As a result, their rash actions had endangered the whole family. And that leads us to the main idea of this passage, which is that by taking revenge on the people of Shechem, Jacob's sons make their entire family a target for destruction. They had just put a bullseye on their backs. Fortunately, as we read in the next chapter, God ends up protecting them. As Jacob and his family are leaving that region, 
Genesis 35.5 says that a terror from the Lord fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. But if God hadn't intervened in that situation and protected them in that way, there's a good chance that Jacob and his family would have been killed. So let's not overlook the fact that when we seek to get revenge on someone else, it often has a way of coming back on us. We often experience unintended consequences in our own lives as a result of the things we do against others. Not only that, the whole mentality of seeking revenge is often just a miserable mentality to have. I mean, sure, there might be some momentary satisfaction or or gratification that we experience uh, as we're exacting revenge, but that doesn't really make us happy. Instead, we're actually rather miserable. I mean, it's, it's just a miserable way to live. And so the question is, how can we overcome the desire for revenge that we often have? We spend all this time talking about the problem. What's the solution? Well, I'd like to suggest two things. There are two primary ways to deal with our desire for revenge. First, remember God's future judgment on the wicked. Remember God's future judgment on the wicked. Whenever we give up, the so-called right to get even, we're not giving up the expectation that evil deeds will one day be punished or that justice will ultimately be upheld. The Bible is very clear about that. It tells us in no uncertain terms that perfect justice is coming. We read in Proverbs 24, 19 and 20, for example, fret not yourself because of evildoers and be not envious of the wicked for the evil man has no future. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. We're also told in Romans 12, 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but what's the alternative? Leave it to the wrath of God for it is written. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. See, God's the one who will make sure that the scales of justice are balanced in the end. That's his job, not our job. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So whenever we seek revenge or try to get even with someone else, we're actually, in effect, taking the place of God. We're usurping his authority and claiming for ourselves a prerogative that belongs to God alone. Instead, we should rest assured that God will indeed make good on his promise to judge the wicked. Justice may presently be delayed, but it won't ultimately be denied. Nobody is 
ultimately getting away with anything. And by the way, this is one reason why it's so important for us to not shy away from the idea of God's judgment. Sometimes it seems as though certain professing Christians try to downplay the biblical teaching that God punishes sinners, as if that were somehow a blemish on God's character or something for us to be embarrassed about. But I'd like to encourage you to embrace the teaching of God's judgment as something that's good and right. Now, obviously, on the one hand, it is very sobering to think of people being punished for their sins, since we know that we ourselves would be recipients of that punishment if it weren't for Jesus. Yet we also find scenes in the Bible like the one in Revelation 16, for example. Right after God pours out judgment on the wicked, an angel praises him in verses 5 and 6, saying, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they, the, the, the wicked, have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. The saints in heaven then echo this expression of praise in verse 7, saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So that's the mentality we should have as we think about God's judgment of sinners. There's no need for us to be embarrassed about anything. I mean, first of all, God himself isn't embarrassed by the fact that he judges the wicked, since he speaks about it plainly throughout the Bible. And also, as we see in these verses here, uh, the angels aren't embarrassed about it either. Nor are the saints in heaven embarrassed about it. And so there's really no need for us to shy away from that aspect of God's character. And actually, the fact that God will give the wicked what they deserve in the future is what keeps us from trying to give them what they deserve in the present. I believe a theologian named Miroslav Volf uh, makes this point very well. I actually shared this thought from Volf sometime in the past, maybe last year or something, but it's just, it's just so good. I couldn't help but share it again. Uh, Miroslav Volf is a Christian theologian at Yale and is from the country of Croatia. And as many of you may know, uh, Croatia was the site of a brutal genocide several decades ago, and Volf is coming out of that. So he watched as some of his friends and family members were slaughtered before his eyes. So as a Christian theologian, he's had to think about how you can forgive people for crimes like that. So we're not just talking about uh, people who hurt your feelings. Right? We're, we're talking about people who have slaughtered your family. How could you ever forgive someone for doing something like that? Well, Miroslav Volf says that one component of being able to extend that forgiveness and not just perpetuating the violence is believing in a God who judges sin. Listen to what he writes. To the person who is inclined to dismiss the belief in divine vengeance, 
I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, and then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The topic of your lecture? A Christian attitude toward violence. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home to believe in God's refusal to judge. If God were not angry at injustice, then God would not be worthy of our worship. The certainty of God's just judgment at the end of history is the presupposition for the renunciation of violence in the middle of it. In other words, the only way we can relinquish our right to demand payment now for the ways people have wronged us, and perpetuating that violence, the only way we can avoid that is to believe that God will eventually sort things out. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, he says. So that's one way to deal with our desire for revenge. Remember God's future judgment on the wicked. And then another way is to remember God's mercy and forgiveness toward us. We actually touched on this a little bit last week when we looked at the parable Jesus tells in Matthew 18 about the unforgiving servant. Uh, I won't read the whole parable again this week, but basically a, a man who uh, was, was very wealthy, he had a servant who owed him millions of dollars. But instead of making the servant pay, this man graciously forgave his servant of that debt. However, right after being forgiven of that enormous debt, the servant turned around and heartlessly prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law another servant who owed him a few hundred dollars. That kind of behavior would be unthinkable, right? To be forgiven of such an enormous debt and then immediately turn around and demand immediate repayment for a tiny debt, that's appalling. Yet that's the situation we're in. We're the ones who have been forgiven of that enormous debt. Our sins against a holy God are way more serious than anything others have done against us. And yet instead of giving us the punishment that our sins deserved, God showed us mercy. He actually sent his own son Jesus to come to this earth and rescue us from our sins through his death on the cross. Like Jesus died in our place, like taking on himself the judgment that our sins deserved, with the result that those of us who put our trust in him can be forgiven of our sins and inherit the gift of eternal life. And aren't you glad God did that for you? Aren't you glad that God didn't try to get even with you? 
but instead sent his own son to rescue you from your sin. And so, since God didn't get even with you, but instead provided for your rescue, how could you or I ever think that it's appropriate for us to try to get even with others? So if you're ever having trouble overcoming a desire for revenge, just consider the mercy that God has shown you and the way he has forgiven you of all your wrongs against him through his son Jesus. And as we, uh, the more we look at Jesus and what he's done for us, the more we see just how remarkable it is. Isaiah 53, 7 says that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet, how did he respond? He opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We also read in 1 Peter 2, 23 and 24, that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, the, the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. So when people wrong Jesus, he didn't wrong them back, did he? He didn't retaliate or seek revenge. In fact, according to Luke 23, 34, he actually prayed for his enemies on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus loved the very people who were crucifying him and demonstrated that love by praying for them even as he hung there on that cross. So if that's the way Jesus treated his enemies, and if we're supposed to be imitators of Jesus, what do you think that means for the way we should treat our enemies? We should do good to them. Right? As Paul says in Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So as you can see, it's not enough for us to simply refrain from seeking revenge or resist the desire to repay evil with evil. As Christians, we're actually called to go beyond that. We're called to repay evil with good. Again, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. But, believe it or not, it actually gets even more radical than that. God calls us not only to do good to those who wrong us, but also to do good as an overflow of genuine love in our hearts. As Jesus says to his disciples in Luke 6, 27 and 28, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, 
Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. The doing of the good and all those other things come from the love within our hearts there. You know, so often we might not actively seek revenge on those who wrong us or or do anything that's malicious against them. But on the inside, we might still be seething with anger and bitterness and resentment. I know that you know what I'm talking about, right? Maybe you've even uh, thought in your mind, maybe you've even fantasized about people who have wronged you getting what they deserve. You want them to suffer the way you've suffered. And preferably, if we're honest, even worse than you've suffered. You relish the thought of that. I've been there. But that's not where God wants us to be. You see, God cares about what's going on in our heart. Think about it like this. We're told in Matthew 5.28 that lust in the heart is a form of adultery. We're also told in John, or 1 John 3.15 that hatred is a form of what? Murder. So isn't it reasonable to conclude that nursing a desire for revenge in our hearts is a form of taking revenge? Through our actions. I think that's a pretty safe conclusion. Maybe you didn't massacre the people of Shechem. But maybe you're still guilty of a form of taking revenge in your heart. The fact is that God calls us to love our enemies from the heart. With the same love that Jesus demonstrated for his enemies on the cross. Love your enemies and do good to those who hate you, Jesus says. And by the way, let me just say that as Christians, one of the most notable ways in which we can be distinct from the world around us is by following this command. You know, we say that we want to make an impact on other people by the way that we live. I can't think of a greater way to make an impact through our lives and and to demonstrate the power and grace of God in our lives than by loving our enemies with the sacrificial love of Jesus. I mean, where else do you see that in society? Who else does that? Nobody. But that's the way Jesus instructs us to live as his disciples.